read an article this week called uh, The Top Ten Musicals Even Guys Will Love. And I think the assumption is that men would prefer to watch something where the action is nonstop, whereas in a musical, you get a little bit of action, but then it's always interrupted by singing and dancing. You, know, you just begin to think, this story is finally getting interesting, but then the music starts. So maybe it's the uh, sound of music, for instance, and Liesl is trapped outside in the rain and the thunderstorm, running around with her Nazi boyfriend, and uh, she's, you know, she's got to climb up the tree to sneak in back into the house through the window, and you think, well, here comes this great confrontation with her ship captain father, only instead there's a song, and not just any song, but a song about raindrops on roses and whiskers on kittens. And so the action comes to a stop, unless you consider giggling and pillow fighting to be action. The first two chapters of Luke's gospel are a little bit like that. They, there are significant action scenes with drama, but then they're broken up by all these songs. Except Luke is a man, and he's writing his gospel for a man, for Theophilus, who is probably a Roman official of some high rank. So he's kind of a tough military guy, exactly the kind of man whose wife might be interested in reading an article called The Top Ten Musicals Even Guys Will Love. And so it begs the question, why does Luke include all these songs? Why does the action in the story come to a complete stop here in Luke chapter 1, verse 46, so that Mary can sing us this song? And as we look through uh, this text this morning, we're going to come to see that Luke is not so interested in just giving us action and events. He's not writing to entertain us. Rather, he's most interested in what the events actually mean. And Mary's song is Luke's way of telling us the significance of what has just happened to her. She's been visited by an angel. She's become pregnant uh, with God's son, even though she's not yet married. And God is about to change the course of all of human history. And so Mary breaks out in this song, a song that has uh, come to be known to us as the Magnificat, which is simply the first word, as you can see from one of the sides of your bookmark, it's simply the first word in the Latin translation of this text. And the song Mary sings goes like this. My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered all those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. And it ends by saying, Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. So as we take a few minutes to uh, consider Mary's song together this morning, we want to ask that question. Why does Luke include this song 
in his gospel? What, uh, what role does it play in his larger strategy? And we're going to suggest three answers this morning. First, that Luke wants us to learn from Mary's example of joy and humility. Second, that he wants us to see how Mary's song is saturated with the words of Scripture. And third, he wants us to notice Mary's ability to see her life as uh, about something than, that's bigger than just herself. Those are the three possible reasons why Luke includes this song and takes a break from the action uh, in his text. And we want to begin by considering that first reason. That is, Mary's song is an example for us of what it looks like to be God's servant. And specifically, we see that through her joy and through her humility. Now, many of us are naturally hesitant to put Mary on a pedestal because there are many Christian traditions that have historically put Mary on a pedestal that's a bit too high. But I don't think we should let those excesses keep us from sharing in the admiration for this woman that Luke obviously had. He includes all this material here about Mary for a reason. I think the reason is he admires her and he wants to teach us through her example. And he does that first through her joyfulness. She says at the beginning of the song, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. And you might say, well, of course she's joyful. She's going to be the mother of Jesus. God has chosen her out of all the women in the whole world throughout history to be the one who gives birth to his son. I was uh, shopping at Target last week for candles for the Ash Wednesday service, and half of the candles in the aisle had her face on them. And you think, well, of course she's joyful. It makes sense. But have you ever thought about how much danger Mary is in at this point? I mean, she's visiting her cousin Elizabeth far from home during the first trimester of her pregnancy, which can't be normal. She's not there just because there's nothing to do back in Nazareth or because the baby supply stores are that much better where Elizabeth lives or anything like that. And who knows what she faced back at home? Ostracism for sure, but possibly something even more dangerous like physical harm. But more than the cultural and social dangers that she would have faced, think about the spiritual danger, the assaults of Satan, the one who's willing to do anything to prevent this child from coming into the world. And we think that our temptations are hard to bear, that the evil one is intent on leading us astray. But imagine what it must have been like for Mary, carrying the baby that Satan hates more than anyone in the world. She's ground zero for spiritual warfare. Maybe you saw this week uh, the story from down in Texas where this girl, I think she was 16 or something like that, this girl was uh, suing her parents to try to win the right to carry her baby to full term rather than uh, have an abortion, which is what they were trying to force her to do. And it seems like if Mary were alive today, something like that would have probably happened to her, right? Satan would have made sure that an abortion clinic opened up across the street from her house so that she would have to walk past it every day because she's in a very vulnerable place. And if you are in a vulnerable place this morning, and I know many of us are, then know that Luke shares Mary's song here for your benefit. You may be tempted uh, in the danger that you're facing to respond with bitterness, or you may be tempted to 
seek the easy way out. I'm sure Mary experienced both of those temptations. But instead, she finds a way to respond with gratitude. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Well, in addition to being an example of joy, Mary is also an example of humility. She says, God has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. The Mighty One has done great things for me. So there's this contrast, right? God is the Mighty One, and Mary is pretty much a nobody. And she says, that contrast actually works for my benefit, because God is especially concerned with the humble, which is exactly the opposite of what you might expect. We expect a great God to be partial to great men. We expect a God who is exalted to be partial to people who are exalted. It reminds me of uh, a conversation I had with one of you this week about uh, a business dinner that you had been invited to, and uh, you know he was served course after course of rare fish and fine wines and all that, and the bill for the dinner was uh, more than my car was worth. And he said, it was like, uh, like I was living in a different world. And you might think, well, that's the kind of world that God would want to live in. Right? CEOs play golf with other CEOs, so God, the CEO of the world, would want to spend his time with all sorts of powerful people. But instead, he prefers the underdog. Mary mentions it three times in her song. She says in verse 48, he's mindful of the humble state of his servant. Uh, verse 52, he's lifted up the humble. Verse 53, he's filled the hungry with good things. If you were here last week, remember Mike talked uh, quite a bit about the Holy Spirit. And I think that one of the signs that the Holy Spirit is at work in your life is that you can exhibit the same kind of gospel humility that Mary does. And I call it gospel humility because only people who have acknowledged their own lowliness and who are overwhelmed by God and who he is, only they are in a position to actually accept the gospel. If I'm not humble, then it's not likely I will notice my own sin. And if I don't notice my own sin, then why would I bother seeking forgiveness from God through Jesus? So for that reason, God prefers the humble, and that's good news for Mary because she's pretty much a nobody. But along with that good news comes the flip side, which is a warning. Because just as Mary mentions three times God's preference for the humble, so three times she warns the powerful. She says in verse 51, he scattered those who are proud. Uh, 52, he brought down the rulers. 53, he sent the rich away empty. So you have pride and power and wealth. And if you think about it, those are probably all three things that characterize Theophilus, the, run, the one that Luke is writing for. And they probably characterize many of us as well. So the song is not recorded here by Luke as kind of a fun musical interlude, but it's a stern warning for each of us who read it to say, look, this is what God is really like. He's a warrior, and it calls him uh, the mighty one. It says he performs mighty deeds with his arm. So he's a warrior, but who is the warrior fighting against? He's fighting against the proud and the powerful. God is setting up a new world order. In the Bible, we call this theme uh, the theme of the great reversal, where he fills the hungry and he sends the rich away empty. And that's what Mary is looking forward to. 
the child she's carrying is going to bring about that great reversal. But in a surprise to everybody, including a surprise to Mary, he's not going to do it through some sort of a political uprising, which if you just had this song, you might think would be what was going to happen. He doesn't do it through a political uprising, but he does it through his own suffering and death. Well, that's the first reason that Luke might include this song for us, that Mary's example of joy and humility. And I think a second reason is to show us what it looks like to be absolutely saturated with Scripture. I heard uh, a story this week about a theologian named R.C. Sproul. Some of you may have uh, heard him on the radio at some point. He was uh, teaching a seminary class, and in this particular class, he would begin every session of the class by picking on some student and calling on him to give the opening prayer uh, for the class. And each time after the prayer was over, Sproul would, quite rudely I might add, uh, critique the prayer and point out all the heresies that the student had just spoken. Uh, and this went on for several weeks, and you know the point was you know, the, the last thing anybody wanted was to be called on to give this prayer because they were afraid of speaking some heresy. Uh, but partway through the semester, Sproul calls on this particular student to give the prayer, and he stands, and you know, everyone is nervous on his behalf, what's going to happen to this poor chap, uh, until he begins the prayer and says, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, and so on and so on. And he sits down, confident that the one prayer that could never be critiqued was the Lord's Prayer. And Mary is wise like that student. Although she doesn't quote any of the Old Testament explicitly in her song, it's clear that the way that she speaks and sings has been heavily influenced by the scriptures. Every time she opens her mouth, it's like she can't help spewing out words that are naturally related in some way to the Old Testament. There's at least four psalms that she clearly alludes to here, in addition to passages from the book of Job and the book of 1 Samuel. And you have to remember, she's just a teenager at this point, right? But she really knows her Bible probably more than most of us do. And I want to, uh, just as an example, look at one of those examples for us. You can see the chart up there that parallels Mary's song with Hannah's song in 1 Samuel. And you remember that like Mary, Hannah was a woman who experienced a very unusual pregnancy. Remember, she was uh, barren for quite some time, and she she prayed to God and said, if you give me a child, I will agree to dedicate this child into your uh, service. And so Mary is singing her song through the lens, sort of, of uh, Hannah's song from 1 Samuel. And you can see that both of them begin their song by praising God, by saying, your name is magnified, rejoicing in God. Both go on to extol the Lord's holiness, and then both have significant sections, like we've already noticed, where they are celebrating God's preference for the humble over and against the mighty. And the point is, Mary is able to see her own experience through the lens of Hannah's song because she knows it so well. She sees her own experience through the lens of God's word. And that should be our goal as well, where God's word not only directs how we live our lives, but it also directs how we pray and how we rejoice and how we weep and lament that like Mary, anytime we open our mouths, our speech would just be 
saturated with God's word. Even if we're not quoting it explicitly, it's just a part of who we are to the extent that when we speak, uh, the words of scripture come out. Well, third, and finally, Luke includes this song because Mary realizes that she is a part of a much larger story. I enjoy, much to your surprise, I'm sure, studying maps quite a bit. And before I visit a new place, I uh, will study a map and try to commit it to memory so that when I arrive, I can uh, do all my navigation, hopefully without consulting it. And this week, I've been studying the map of uh, Florence, Italy, in preparation for a trip we're taking. I'm reading in my guidebook about some uh, churches and museums, and they have a map in the guidebook uh, of this particular neighborhood that shows how conveniently located some of these sites are to each other. But when I looked at the bigger map of the whole city and saw how the smaller neighborhood map fit in, I saw that those sites actually weren't convenient at all because they weren't anywhere close to where we're planning on staying. I needed to look at the bigger map to really see the significance of the smaller one. And that's a little bit like what happens at the end of Mary's song. It's as if the camera had been focused solely on her for most of the song, but then at the end, the lens sort of pans back and you see that really she's just one part of a much larger whole. And you see that there in verse 54 at the end of, at the, end of the song where she says, he has helped his servant Israel, not his servant Mary, he's helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and to his descendants forever. Many famous television and radio preachers today are often criticized for uh, preaching a false gospel, a prosperity gospel, where uh, faith is rewarded by material blessings. And although those criticisms are often justified, I think, there is another error as well, and that's having no sense that there is something bigger than just me and my life. My focus is all on myself, living my best life, my own success, getting God to bless me. But Mary's song reminds us that we are a part of something much, much bigger, and that when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we become a part of a family and we step into a story about that family that's already in progress. So I am excited that uh, several of you were gathered this morning uh, for a Sunday school class to focus on what we're calling the history of Christ Church Highland Park, which you would think would be the shortest Sunday school class in the world since we've only existed under that name for two years. But the fact is, we are a part of a bigger story, 30 plus years of Christ Church and a hundred plus years of Christians worshiping here on this corner in Highland Park. And I think our faith is the healthiest when we understand that there is something bigger than just me. Now you might think, uh, doesn't that minimize then the importance of my life? And I think, that no it doesn't, I think the opposite is actually true. Rather than making my life less significant, Focusing on the big picture actually makes my life more significant because I have the chance to play a role in something much bigger than I could ever do by myself. God's great plan for history and the story that God is writing. And I want to just briefly notice two examples in this song of how Mary sees what's happening to her specifically as a part of this much larger story. 
And we've already noticed how she describes God as the mighty one and how she talks about the mighty deeds that he's done with his arm. Well, what Old Testament story does that language remind you of? Well, it should remind you of the Exodus, because Moses says again and again to the people, remember how he brought you out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. And so Mary is saying that the same kind of power that God displayed back in the Exodus when he parted the sea and he defeated the Egyptians, that same kind of power is on display again now in the conception of my son and the soon-to-be birth of Jesus. Just see, the story is continuing. God led his people out of bondage to the Egyptians once before, but now he's going to once and for all lead us out of bondage to sin through his son. The other part of God's story that Mary highlights is even more obvious. Abraham's reference there at the end says, he helped a servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever. Abraham is, uh, is a name that shows up again and again in Luke and in Acts. It's like 20 or 25 times. And it's not surprising because you remember it was to Abraham that God promised, I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth through you. And Mary believes that's what's happening to her. It's not a disruption in God's plan. In other words, bringing Jesus into the world isn't a second try. It's not as if God tried this plan first, and now since it didn't work so well, he's going to try something else. No, Jesus was his plan from the beginning. Jesus was the mysterious seed promised to Eve back in the garden. Jesus was the seed of promise uh, to Abraham as well. And Mary now is willing to step in to that story and to play her role, step into the story that God is writing. And we have to be willing to do the same thing. Now, uh, Mary's role is admittedly more significant than any of ours probably ever will be. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't intend to use you as well. In fact, I'm certain that if you're willing, God will use you as a part of this great story that he's writing. Your life, like Mary's, can be a part of something much bigger than yourself. And one of the best things about stepping into that story is knowing ahead of time how it's going to end. You notice that Mary uses all these past tenses in her song, right? She says, he brought down rulers. He lifted up the humble. He filled the hungry. Now, all these things were not accomplished perfectly during Mary's lifetime, and they certainly haven't been accomplished perfectly during our lifetime either. But she's so sure that God is going to accomplish these things through her son that she can speak of these events as if they have already happened. The end of the story has been determined. And so the only question for us is, will you step in and be a part of that story, or are you content simply to focus on writing your own personal story, a story that might include impressive temporal benefits, but a story that ultimately has little eternal significance? Would you join me in prayer? God, we pray now that you would, uh, through of your Holy Spirit, help us to seek to be a part of that first greater story, that you would use us in the story that you're writing to bring 
all that you have determined to uh, a conclusion. We pray that we would be your servants uh, now and throughout this week, and we pray this in Christ's name.